Hey, what's up, everybody? Adam Manis here. We are still on our summer hiatus. Peter Martin's traveling right now. I'm off next week, so we won't be back until September. But we wanted to give you a little bit of a gift to tide you over. We wanted to share part of an interview with the great Fred Hirsch. This is from his Open Studio course, Thoughts and Experiments in Solo Piano. Uh, Fred is being interviewed here by one of our Open Studio team members and very fine pianist in his own right, Brian Fielding. They're old friends. Uh, Brian has known Fred and studied with Fred for years and years and years. And uh, in this excerpt uh, of the uh, almost hour-long interview, Brian and Fred talk about some really, really cool and important things. Uh, it starts off with a kind of a talking about mindfulness at the instrument, and then it goes into Fred just discussing what it was like to come of age and learn about jazz piano in New York in the 70s, surrounded by you know these masters like Tommy Flanagan and Barry Harris. And uh, it's just a really fascinating uh, look into the life and the career of one of our favorite pianists around here at Open Studio, and you'll hear a podcast. And we thought you would enjoy it. So please enjoy this conversation with Fred Hirsch. A lot of what I've talked about in this course is uh, pretty much akin to a meditation practice. Uh, when you sit down on a cushion for, let's say, a half an hour, and you put your little timer there, um, you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, you might be fidgety, you might be planning, uh, you might get tired, your shoulders might hurt, or you might be in this beautiful flow of being with the breath or the hearing sensations or the feel of your body on the cushion that could last for 10 breaths or it could last for 10 minutes. Uh, when we sit at the piano, if we can take you know, a half an hour and say, okay, uh, let's see what happens during this half hour. And maybe during that half hour, you pick maybe three little things to try, three little experiments in a half an hour. Uh, and they can be really anything at all. Uh, what happens if I do this over this period of time? Um, and the important thing is, uh, when you're meditating, you just need to be with what is. You don't want to judge it. Thoughts are not bad. You don't push them away. You go thinking. You just, okay, I'm thinking. And just the fact you're aware of thinking is in itself awareness. And when we're sitting at the piano, what we're doing is essentially an active meditation. We are doing something in real time. So what you played is what you just played. And the challenge comes in is when you think about what you just played. Or you, you judge, judge what you yeah. just played. Right, yes, exactly. if you judge what you just played, right. then Guilty you're... Guilty as charged. Right, you know? yeah, right. Or, I mean, it's good to, to, to you know, you can think about it, but you don't want to, like, think with a capital T about it or put a, a rule on it. Oh, I should have done it this way. Yeah, or, yeah, you don't want to load it. You know, you, it's a phrase. Okay, what happens next? I don't know. We're having a conversation. I don't know what you're going to say in a minute. And that's cool. I'm saying what I'm saying now, and you're saying what you're saying now. And so that's where we need to be when we, when we play music, especially, uh, most importantly, improvised music. Here we were focused on solo piano, of course, right? And so thinking about you know, your body of work, I mean, you, 
typically our solo duo or trio, at least for the last you know, decade or two, um, the occasional larger group ensemble, obviously, my, my Coma Dreams and, and uh, some chamber works. But, you know, your conception, solo, you know, you, you, you typically structure your sets with, you know, the American Songbook or classic jazz compositions or Fred Hirsch compositions, you know, structured songs, right? And then you think about other solo pianists in the tradition, um, Cecil Taylor comes to mind, Keith mm -hmm. Jarrett comes to mind, who are, who are different than that kind of solo piano. There's obviously been other great soloists that, the solo piano players that play off of tunes, but Keith and Cecil, not that I know them personally to call them by their first names, but, you know, come from a completely different sort of frame. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk a little bit about, about you and that sort of lineage? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned those two names. Um, when I was a, a budding jazz pianist in Cincinnati, Ohio at age 18 or 19, uh, the way that I looked at it then was sort of we had the north and south poles of solo piano at that time, Cecil Taylor and Keith Jarrett. And uh, Cecil's music is uh, fiercely intelligent and kind of ferocious, uh, a lot of it. Um, uh, Keith was coming out of being uh, a tune player with Charles Lloyd, then being a composer mostly in his American quartet with uh, Dewey Redman and Charlie Hayden and Paul Motion, and then and and was also segueing into these, just sitting down and seeing what happened solo concerts, and when I first heard the Bremen and Lausanne concert. And believe I've actually played in that Brayman Hall, and it is special. Um, uh, it was a real eye opener uh, for a I lot of people. For a lot of us. For a lot of people, and then of course the Cologne concert, which was a huge success. Now Brayman and Lausanne was like in like '75. Well, something? he did Facing You, and then Brayman and Lausanne. That's what I wanted to bring up was Facing You, because Facing right. You is a studio album. Facing You is a studio right. album. So, well, at some point, let's dig into the the differentials between. Yeah. But uh, I've seen Cecil many times. I was privileged to know him a little bit. Um, and the last time I saw him was at the North Sea Festival in Holland. He was playing solo, and he had pieces of paper all over the piano. So his music, uh, one of his famous albums is called Unit Structures. I mean, his music was actually very structured in his own language. Keith was very, you know, if he wanted to hang out on G major for a while, well, he'd just hang out on G major for a while, you know, uh, and he made Not it in Facing You, though, right? No, Facing Some You was more concise, yeah. like more defined pieces, uh, original pieces. Um, uh, Chick Corea was doing things a little bit like that at that time. Volume uh, one and two. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's such a rich tradition in, in solo piano. Um, uh, um, and especially when I started working uh, a bit with Jackie Byard at New England Conservatory in 75 through 77, um, I really be became aware of the whole history of solo uh, piano. You turned me on to uh, Roland Hanna's Alone with the Blues, is that? Yes, is that right? yeah. Sir Roland Hanna, he was a, he was a great influence. Yes. And actually, uh, I got to know him quite well among... Uh, uh, many other pianists by hanging out at this famous club, Bradley's, mm. 
where I was very close with uh, Tommy Flanagan and uh, Barry Harris and Sir Roland Hanna and Jimmy Rolls and, and Kirk Lightsey and John Hicks and you know so many people that hung out at that club, great pianists. Yeah. And um, it was uh, Sir Roland that uh, said to me, I think you have the makings of a good solo player. You should really think about, about that. And uh, I made my first trio album um, for the Concord Jazz label when, uh, when I was 30. So I was about 1985 or so. And then I made my first solo album, ironically also for Concord Jazz, which was live at Maybeck. They did a remarkable series of 40 or 50 solo piano albums all done in this beautiful wooden jewel of a concert hall that seated maybe 50 people. The and you, sound they got, I thought beautiful. was extraordinary. And you'd, you'd play on Sunday afternoon and it was live and that was your album. You know, no retakes, no second takes. You played a concert, that was it. You have a song on your the album, Heart, Heartland, which I love. Right. You play a little bright. Uh, on that, on that, uh, on I that think particular... you're thinking of Heart Song. I am thinking of Heart Song. Yeah, yeah that yeah, was yeah. a lot faster than I play it now. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. and I played the song as you much faster than I play it now. Um, and right. over the years of making records, this is 35 years of a discography at this point, there are certain tunes that I've recorded two or three times in different ways or in different configurations or different instrumentations, uh, mine or other people's songs and um, I guess I, I think uh, if you think of visual arts um, you know a classic theme would be a bowl of fruit a still life or or a landscape or a nude or some, something like that you know the basic yeah. things that you think of uh, art school students dealing with well the way that we deal with standards those are the things, like when I hear somebody play a tune that I've heard played many times, it sort of lets me know where that person is at because I have something, not to compare it to in a bad way, but I have a sense of whether they have command of it or the, the language or the pianistic ability. Um, so I don't think that the ultimate version of Stella by Starlight has been played yet or Autumn Leaves, or Body and Soul. I think there's always room for different interpretations of these great themes. So you don't have to play an original composition to be original. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's the beauty of but this music. Keith's, but Keith's thing from in the Bremen Lucerne uh, era, right? It, fe it feels like he, he would approach the piano as an empty vessel. Mm -hmm. Not that you don't, you know, mm -hmm. but if, but it's still it's slightly it's a slightly different f approach, right? It's right. Like, yeah. Like I, what's going to come up for him in the moment? Who's coughing in the audience, or right? You know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of of the theme and variation school, you know. I mean, yeah. uh, and uh, with solo piano, as I've discussed in this course, you have the possibility of making what I call continuous music instead of marking choruses or sections. You can blur those lines and create tensions and create longer forms. I've done a lot of what I call open improvisation projects. And um, for instance, on my album, uh, Open Book, there's a 20 minute yeah. open improvisation, um, which is not typical of me. 
just something that came to me and I said, oh, this is interesting and keep rolling with it. Uh, wasn't anything I set out to do. And you have some song, a child song. That has, yeah, that there, there's state, no chord changes. Yeah, and then you just flow. Right? Yeah, it's like whatever happens, happens. It's just like a launch pad, right. a vibe, a theme you can work with or not. Uh, and I've played with a lot of musicians who we might consider more open music players. I don't like the term free, free jazz. I don't Charlie know. Hayden is on the one recording where... Yes, okay. I play some Ornette Coleman music with Charlie Hayden, yeah. which was a great honor. You played Turnaround tonight, right? I played Turnaround, yeah. yes, yeah. which is a very traditional Ornette Coleman yeah. piece. Yeah, but you, <laughs> you made it Fred's tune. That was a gorgeous performance. What, what did Sir Roland Hanna say to you, or what was the context of his conversation with you suggesting that you um, play solo? Well, I think he heard uh, maybe uh, the fact that I was very passionate about chords and harmony and the way that they're voiced, you know, how they resonate. Was that hearing you at Bradley's? Or, or? Yeah, and uh, one afternoon just hanging out at his house. So Bradley's, I know you came, you were at New England Conservatory for a minute or two. Graduated in 1977, So you yes. actually graduated. Wow. I actually graduated. So many cats go, they go for a year I and they know. go, yeah, then I got a call from Carmen McRae or I got a call from Brady no, Carter. I, I, I hung out. And then you, I know you moved to like within spitting distance of Bradley. 11th Street and University Place in the village, yeah. yeah. And was Knickerbocker doing its thing then or that took another couple years, right? It took a couple years. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about Bradley's and just that vibe in, in that era and, and your, well, your experience and how it helped you, you know, blossom. Yeah, just to paint a picture for younger musicians of what New York was like uh, in the late 70s, uh, the city was essentially bankrupt. Crime was high. Uh, there were four channels of television. There was no internet. The only technology was an answering machine. Yeah, there were no cell phones. Uh, no cell phones. So yeah. what happened was everybody went out every night. You'd go, who's playing there? Okay, let's go to this club. Oh, yeah, okay, let's catch the last set there. Or let's go out for drinks or dinner or I'll meet you at so-and-so. Uh, it was, there was a, a feeling of a social one-to-one -one, uh, uh, or group uh, dynamic. And, and Bradley's was the place where all the jazz musicians, the, the line used to be, everybody ends up at Bradley's. So you finish- On any given day. <laughs> on any given day, right, night, on any right. given night. Right. So uh, people would, uh, play at the Village Vanguard, finish at two-ish, head over to Bradley's and hang out till four. Um, all the piano players and bass players hung out there. There was an arcane cabaret law that said you couldn't have drums uh, uh, if you were within certain feet of a church or uh, you know whatever noise thing, I don't know. So Bradley Cunningham came up with this idea of piano-based duos and that was the format there. Uh, I was lucky to play with so many great bass players, Sam Jones, Buster Williams, Charlie Hayden, Ron Carter, George Mraz, uh, Bob Cranshaw, on and on and on over the years uh, at Bradley's. And piano players... I would, heard you there many times. Yeah. It's that's, surprising we didn't meet there. We did end up right. meeting in 1980, but right. Knickerbockers had already had just opened, I think. Cause, uh, yes, cause probably. We used to, 
not you and I, but myself alone mostly, but often with friends, we'd bounce between Knickerbocker and Bradley's this between was on, sets. Yes, university right. place in the village. Yeah, a couple blocks, a, a block yeah. apart. But we met at, I, th I think you were, I think you were gigging at Knickerbocker. I probably was. A mutual friend of ours. Uh, right. Yeah, so, so, you know, oftentimes people would, a pianist would get around the piano and you could say, hey, uh, on this Billy Strayhorn tune, like, what, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate that? Uh, or what changes do you play on this? Or Cedar Walton taught me the bridge to Round Midnight. Right. At See? about three in the morning. See, morning. there you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I saw Jimmy Rolls and Tommy Flanagan have cutting contests. Like, do you know this tune? I don't know. I'll play it. Do you know this tune? You know, back and forth. Uh, it was a magical time to be in New York and uh, to play with the legends that I got to play with uh, during that time. and. You know, through my sideman years in my 20s, getting a chance to play with so many uh, legends and hang out with them and have a drink at the bar with Art Blakey and, you know, say hello to Charles Mingus. And, Joni Mitchell. And, yeah, say hello to, twice. yeah right. say hello to Joni Mitchell. You know, it was, a, it was like a beautiful, uh, a beautiful time before jazz became a little more institutionalized before, uh, now, of course, every school has a jazz department or jazz program. Back then there were a handful of schools that acknowledged jazz uh, in the mid-70s. Um, uh, and before big institutions like SF Jazz and Jazz Lincoln Center. Uh, so mostly gigs were clubs or tours in, in Europe, some concerts. Um, people didn't have, uh, you know, stylists and publicists, uh, you know. So you'd hang out with these great legends and the the big ones had agents but everybody was approachable you could, you this, could at the time we had the vanguard uh, sweet basil didn't come on for another couple of years no that I, was I open then in the in 80 yeah was it was it in 80 mm -hmm. knickerbocker bradley's fat oh, tuesdays there were, there were so many jazz i mean that's streets. just five right there and, right. and you can't basically count five right i mean covid notwithstanding yeah, well, there were there were so many little clubs in the village that had pianos, what we called restaurant gigs. There were um, uh, hotel gigs that had piano players. Uh, I mean, I spent many years playing uh, in the Catskills, playing weddings, uh, doing charts for singers, uh, accompanying, um, uh, and I was doing something or another five nights a week for many, many years. It's interesting that for you personally, Bradley's, you could, uh, I'm sort of viewing it as ground, ground zero. Yes, for, that, for that, was, that, was, that was ground zero, yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I started, uh, started you know, my career such as, as it was. And then, uh, uh, you know, these days, uh, most young musicians have made an album even before they're out of music school. But back then, you had to have a record company. They were pressing vinyl. You know, you couldn't do that yourself. Uh, you had to have the resources of a record label and to pay for the studio and, and all that kind of stuff. You couldn't do it in your living room. Um, so I've lived through all these great eras, but the, I think the thing that I want to emphasize is um, I'm part of the last generation that, that learned jazz by doing it. Mm by playing it, by the oral tradition of asking questions, of hearing people, 
of, of just hanging around. Um, the slightly, Joe Lovano, the great tenor player, is slightly older than I. He comes from Cleveland, I come from Cincinnati. His father was a tenor player. You know, so he learned in that way too. Uh, we're part of that, that, that batch of players uh, that even though in my case, I did go to music school, uh, very fine music school, but I did not th go there to study jazz. I went there to study music, to be a better musician, to get exposed to Renaissance music and 20th century music and play chamber music and you know, play in a big band and, and, and hang out with musicians who had different uh, interests and backgrounds. Uh, and then coming to New York and just, you know, jam sessions and, and all that kind of stuff um, it was a, you know, uh, uh, musicians were not expected to be composers. They were not expected to be business people. They were not expected. There was no social media. They were artists. They were, they were <laughs> but they were, they were, I mean, and I have to say largely male. It was, everybody was kind of like a cat on the scene, whether you were Art Blakey or me. I mean, you were a, a guy looking for a gig.